Hey everyone, it's me, TV. Just reminding you, we have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com, check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean, look cool, have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. Greetings, listeners, and welcome to 2022. This month, January, we will be covering 20, not 22, science fiction stories of all different sorts. I hope you enjoy them as much as I've been enjoying my copper cow coffee in this new year. Why, yes, I had some churro this morning as I was getting Dusseldorf and Barbacoa. No, that's not my children's real names. Don't worry, I don't have Portland names for my children. Uh, uh, sorry to break character, but some people are like, is that really your kids' names? No, no. But they do like watching me uh, make copper cow coffee. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm lactose intolerant, but their mom is not. And she has been getting the mocha, which, uh, it is a chocolate condensed milk. I mean, it's, it's sweetened condensed milk with chocolate in it and the original, uh, no flavors black coffee, uh, copper cow. And you know what? Check it out. Check out the show notes. Get some copper cow. But more importantly, check out this science fiction and we'll see you in a bit. All right. Here we go. Exile by HB5. The Dome of Eyes made it almost impossible for Terrans to reach the world of Tipak. For those who did land there, there was no returning, only the bitterness of respect and justice. The Depokton student, whose blue robe, in George Kinton's opinion, clashed with the dull purple of his scales, twiddled a three-clawed hand for attention. Kinton nodded to him from his place on the dais before the group. Then can you give us no precise count of the stars in the galaxy, George? Kinton smiled wryly and ran a wrinkled hand through his graying hair. In the clicking Depokton speech, his name came out more like George. Questions like this had been put to him often during the ten years since his rocket had hurtled through the meteorite belt and down to the surface of Teapok, leaving him the only survivor. Barred off as they were from venturing into space, the highly civilized Teapoktans constantly displayed the curiosity of dreamers in matters related to the universe. Because of the veil of meteorites and satellite fragments whirling about their planet, their astronomers had acquired torturous skills but only scraps of real knowledge. As I believe I mentioned in some of my recorded lectures, Kenton answered in their language, the number is actually as vast as it seems to those of you peering through the dome of eyes. The scientists of my race have not yet encountered any beings capable of estimating the total. He leaned back and scanned the faces of his interviewers, faces that would have been oddly humanoid were it not for the elongated snouts and pointed, sharp-toothed jaws. The average Tipokton was slightly under Kenton's height of five feet ten, with a long, supple trunk. Under the robes their scholars affected, 
The shortness of their two bowed legs was not obvious, but the sight of the short, thick arms carried high before their chests still left Kenton with a feeling of misproportion. He should be used to it after ten years, he thought, but even the reds or purples of the scales or the big teeth seemed more natural. I sympathize with your curiosity, he added. It's a marvel that your scientists have managed to measure the distance of so many stars. He could tell that they were pleased by his admiration, and wondered yet again why any little show of approval by him was so eagerly received. Even though he was the first stellar visitor in their recorded history, Kenton remained conscious of the fact that in many fields he was unable to offer the Tepoctans any new ideas. In one or two ways, he believed, no Terran could teach their experts anything. Then will you tell us, George, more about the problems of your first space explorers, came another question. Before Kenton had formed his answer, the golden curtains at the rear of the austerly simple chamber parted. Claft, the Tepoctan, serving the current year as Kenton's chief aide, hurried toward the dais. The twenty-odd members of the group fell silent on their polished stone benches, turning their pointed visages to follow Claft's progress. The aide reached Kenton and bent to hiss and cluck into the latter's ear in what he presumably considered an undertone. The Terran laboriously spelled out the message inscribed on the limp, satiny paper held before his eyes. Then he rose and took one step toward the waiting group. I regret I shall have to conclude this discussion, he announced. I am informed that another ship from space has reached the surface of Teapot. My presence is requested in case the crew are of my own planet. Claft excitedly skipped down to lead the way up the aisle, but Kenton hesitated. Those in the audience were scholars or officials to whom attendance at one of Kenton's limited number of personal lectures was awarded as an honor. They would hardly learn anything from him directly that was not available in recordings made over the course of years. The Tepoctan scientists, historians, and philosophers had respectfully but eagerly gathered every crumb of information Kenton knowingly had to offer, and some he thought he had forgotten. Still, he sensed the disappointment at his announcement. I shall arrange for you to await my return here in town, Kenton said, and there were murmurs of pleasure. Later, aboard the jet helicopter that was basically like those Kenton remembered using on Terra twenty light-years away, he shook his head at Claff's respectful protest. But George, it was enough that they were present when you received the news. They can talk about that the rest of their lives. You must not waste your strength on these people who come out of curiosity. Kenton smiled at his aide's earnest concern. Then he turned to look out the window as he recalled the shadow that underlay such remonstrances. He estimated he was about forty-eight now, as nearly as he could tell from the somewhat longer revolutions of Teapot. The time would come when he would age and die, whose wishes would then prevail. Maybe he was wrong, he thought. Maybe he shouldn't stand in the way of their biologists and surgeons but he'd rather be buried, even if that left them with only what he could tell them about the human body. To help himself forget the rather preoccupied manner in which some of the Tepoctan scientists occasionally eyed him, he peered down at the big dam of the hydroelectric project being completed to Kenton's design. 
Power from this would soon light the town built to house the staff of scientists, students, and workers assigned to the Institute, organized about the person of Kenton. Now, there was an example of their willingness to repay him for whatever help he had been, he reflected. They hadn't needed that for themselves. In some ways, compared to those of Terra, the industries of Teapok were underdeveloped. In the first place, the population was smaller and had different standards of luxury. In the second, a certain lack of drive resulted from the inability to break out into interplanetary space. Kenton had been inexplicably lucky to have reached the surface even in a battered hulk. The shell of the meteorites was at least a hundred miles thick and constantly shifting. We do not know if they have always been meteorites, the Tepoctans had told Kenton, or whether part of them come from a destroyed satellite, but our observers have proven mathematically that no direct path through them may be predicted more than a very short while in advance. Kenton turned away from the window as he caught the glint of Teapok's son on the hull of the spaceship they also had built for him. Perhaps, would it be fair to encourage the newcomer to attempt the barrier? For ten years, Kenton had failed to work up any strong desire to try it. The Teapoktans called the ever-shifting lights of the dome eyes after a myth in which each tiny satellite bright enough to be visible was supposed to watch over a single individual on the surface. Like their brothers on Terra, the native astronomers could trace their science back to a form of astrology, and Kenton often told them jokingly that he felt no urge to risk a physical encounter with his own personal eye. The helicopter started to descend, and Kenton remembered that the city named in his message was only about twenty miles from his home. The brief twilight of Teapok was passing by the time he set foot on the landing field, and he paused to look up. The brighter stars visible from this part of the planet twinkled back at him, and he knew that each was being scrutinized by some amateur or professional astronomer. Before an hour had elapsed, most of them would be obscured by the tiny moonlets, some of which could already be seen. These could easily be mistaken for stars or the other five planets of the system, but in a short while the tinier ones in groups would cause a celestial haze resembling a miniature Milky Way. Claft, who had descended first, leaving the pilot to bring up the rear, noticed Kenton's pause. Glory glitters till it is known for a curse, he remarked quoting a Tepoctan proverb often applied by the disgruntled scientist to the Dome of Eyes. Kenton observed, however, that his aide also stared upward for a long moment. The Tepoctans loved speculating about the unsolvable. They had even found clubs to argue whether two satellites had been destroyed or only one. Half a dozen officials hastened up to escort the party to the vehicle awaiting Kenton. Claft succeeded in quieting the lesser members of the delegation, so that Kenton was able to learn a few facts about the new arrival. The crash had been several hundred miles away, but someone had thought of the hospital in this city which was known to have a doctor rating as an expert in human physiology. The survivor, only one occupant of the wreck, alive or dead, had been discovered, had accordingly been flown here. With a clanging of bells, the little convoy of ground cars drew up in front of the hospital. 
A way was made through the chittering crowd around the entrance. Within a few minutes, Kenton found himself looking down at a pallet upon which lay another Terran. A man, he thought, then curled a lip wryly at the sudden, unexpected pang of disappointment. Well, he hadn't realized until then what he was really hoping for. The spaceman had been cleaned up and bandaged by the native medicos. Kenton saw that his left thigh was probably broken. Other dressings suggested cracked ribs and lacerations on the head and shoulders. The man was dark-haired but pale of skin, with a jutting chin and a nose that had been flattened in some earlier mishap. The flaring set of his ears somehow emphasized an overall leanness. Even in sleep, his mouth was thin and hard. Thrown across the controls after his belt broke loose, Kenton guessed. I bow to your wisdom, George, said the plump, Tepoctan doctor who appeared to be in charge. Kenton could not remember him, but everyone on the planet addressed the Terran by the sound they fondly thought to be his first name. This is Dr. Chuxelkey, murmured Claft. Kenton made the accepted gesture of greeting with one hand and said, You seem to have treated him very expertly. Chuxelkey ruffled the scales around his neck with pleasure. I have studied Terran physiology, he admitted complacently. From your records and drawings, of course, George, for I have not yet had the good fortune to visit you. We must arrange a visit soon, said Kenton. Claft will. He broke off at the sound from the patient. A Terran, mumbled the injured man. He shook his head dazedly, tried to sit up, and subsided with a groan. Why, he looked scared when he saw me, thought Kenton. You're all right now, he said soothingly. It's all over and you're in good hands. I gather there were no other survivors of the crash. The man stared curiously. Kenton realized that his own language sputtered clumsily from his lips after ten years. He tried again. My name is George Kenton. I don't blame you if I'm hard to understand. You see, I've been here ten years without ever having another Terran to speak to. The spaceman considered that for a few breaths, then seemed to relax. Al Birkin, he introduced himself laconically. Ten years? A little over, confirmed Kenton. It's extremely unusual that anything gets through to the surface, let alone a spaceship. What happened to you? Birkin's stare was suspicious. Then you ain't heard about the new colonies. Nah, you must have come here when all the planets were open. We had a small settlement on the second planet, Kenton told him. You mean there are new Terran colonies? Yeah, jet hoppers spreading all over the other five. None of the land-hungry poops figured a way to set down here, though, or they'd be creeping around this planet, too. How did you happen to do it? Run out of fuel? The other eyed him for a few seconds before dropping his gaze. Kenton was struck with sudden doubt. The outposts of civilization were followed by less desirable developments as a general rule, prisons, for instance. He resolved to be wary of the visitor. You might say I was exploring, Birkin replied at last. That's why I come alone. Didn't want anybody else hurt if I didn't make it. Say, how bad am I banged up? Kitten realized guiltily that the man should be resting. He had lost track of the moments he had wasted in talk while the others with him stood attentively about. 
He questioned the doctor briefly and relayed the information that Birkin's leg was broken, but that the other injuries were not serious. They'll fix you up, he assured the spaceman. They're quite good at it, even if the sight of one does not make you think a little of an iguana. Rest up now, and I'll come back again when you're feeling better. For the next three weeks, Kenton flew back and forth from his own town nearly every day. He felt that he should not neglect the few meetings which were the only way he could repay the Tipoctans for all they did for him. On the other hand, the chance to see and talk with one of his own kind drew him like a magnet to the hospital. The doctors operated upon Birkin's leg, inserting a metal rod inside the bone by a method they had known before Kenton described it. The new arrival expected to be able to walk, with care, almost any day, although the pin would have to be removed after the bone had healed. Meanwhile, Birkin seemed eager to learn all Kenton could tell him about the planet, Teapot. About himself, he was remarkably reticent. Kenton worried about this. I think we should not expect too much of this Terran, he warned Claft uneasily. You too have citizens who do not always obey your laws, who sometimes, that is, who are born to die under the axe, as we say, interrupted Claft, as if to ease the concern plain on Kenton's face. In other words, criminals. You suspect this Alberkin is such a one, George? It is not impossible, admitted Kenton unhappily. He will tell me little about himself. It may be that he was caught in Teapock's gravity while fleeing from justice. To himself, he wished he had not told Birkin about the spaceship. He didn't think the man exactly believed his explanation of why there was no use taking off in it. Yet he continued to spend as much time as he could visiting the other man. Then, as his helicopter landed at the city port one gray dawn, the news reached him. The other Terran has gone, Claft reported, turning from the breathless messenger as Kenton followed him from the machine. Gone? Where'd they take him? Claft looked uneasy, embarrassed. Kenton repeated his question, wondering about the group of armed police on hand. In the night, Claft hissed and clucked when none would think to watch him. They tell me, and quite rightly, I think. Get on with it, Claft, please. In the night, then, Al Birkin left the chamber in which he lay. He can walk some now, you know, because of Dr. Chuxelkey's metal pin. He, he stole a ground car and is gone. He did? Kenton had an empty feeling in the pit of his stomach. Is it known where he went? I mean... He has been curious to see some of Teapot. Perhaps he stopped, his own words brain in his ears. Claft was clicking two claws together, a sign of emphatic disagreement. Al Birkin, he said, was soon followed by three police constables in another vehicle. They found him heading in the direction of our town. Why did he say he was traveling that way? asked Kenton, thinking to himself of the spaceship. Was the man crazy? He did not say, answered Claft expressionlessly. Taking them by surprise, he killed two of the constables and injured the third before fleeing with one of their spears. Clinton felt his eyes bulging with dismay. Yes, for they carried only the short spears of their authority, not expecting to need fire weapons. 
Kenton looked from him to the messenger, noticing for the first time that the latter was an under-officer of police. He shook his head distractedly. It appeared that his suspicions concerning Birkin had been only too accurate. Why was it one like him who got through, he asked himself in silent anguish. After ten years, the Tabachtans had been thinking well of Terrans, but now... He did not worry about his own position. That was well enough established. Whether or not he could again hold up his head before the purple-scaled people who had been so generous to him. Even if they had been aroused to a rage by the killing, Kenton told himself he would not have been concerned about himself. He had reached a fairly ripe age for a spaceman. In fact, he had already enjoyed a decade of borrowed time. But they were more civilized than that wanton murderer, he realized. He straightened up, forcing back his early morning weariness. We must get into the air immediately, he told Claft. Perhaps we may see him before he reaches. He broke off at the word spaceship, but he noticed a reserved expression on Claft's pointed face. His aide had probably reached a conclusion similar to his own. They climbed back into the cabin and Claft gave brisk orders to the lean young pilot. A moment later, Kenton saw the ground outside drop away. Only upon turning around did he realize that two armed Tepoctans had materialized in time to follow Claft inside. One was a constable, but the other he recognized for an officer of some rank. Both wore slung across their chests weapons resembling long-barreled pistols with large, oddly indented butts to fit Tepoctan claws. The constable, in addition, carried a contraption with a quadruple tube for launching tiny rockets, no thicker than Kinton's thumb. These, he knew, were loaded with an explosive worthy of respect on any planet he had heard of. To protect him, he wondered, or to get Birkin. The pilot headed the craft back toward Kenton's town in the brightening sky of early day. Long before the buildings of Kenton's Institute came into view, they received a radio message about Birkin. He has just been seen on the road passing the dam, Claft reported soberly after having been called to the pilot's compartment. He stopped to demand fuel from some maintenance workers, but they had been warned and fled. Couldn't they have seized him? demanded Kenton, his tone sharp with the worry he endeavored to control. He has that spear, I suppose, but he is only one and injured. Cleft hesitated. Well, couldn't they? The aide looked away, out one of the windows at some sun-dyed clouds ranging from pink to orange. He grimaced and clicked his showy teeth uncomfortably. Perhaps they thought you might be offended, George, he answered at last. Kenton settled back in the seat, especially padded to fit the contours of his Terran body, and stared silently at the partition behind the pilot. In other words, he thought, he was responsible for Birkin, who was a Terran, one of his own kind. Maybe they really didn't want to risk hurting his feelings, but that was only part of it. They were leaving it up to him to handle what they considered his private affair. He wondered what to do. He had no actual faith in the idea that Birkin was delirious or acting under any influence but that of a criminally self-centered nature. I shouldn't have told him about the ship, Kenton muttered, gnawing the knuckle of his left thumb. He's on the run, all right. 
Probably scared the colonial authorities will trail him right down through the dome eyes. Wonder what he did. He caught himself and looked around to see if he had been overheard. Claft and the police officers peered from their respective windows in calculated withdrawal. Kenton, disturbed, tried to remember whether he had spoken in Terran or Tepoctan. Would Birkin listen if he tried reasoning, he asked himself. Maybe if he showed the man how they had proved the unpredictability of the openings through the shifting dome of eyes. An exclamation from the constable drew his attention. He rose, and room was made for him at the opposite window. In the distance, beyond the town landing field they were now approaching, Kenton saw a halted ground car. Across the plain, which was colored a yellowish tan by short, grass-like growth, a lone figure plodded toward the upthrust bulk of the spaceship that had never flown. Never mind landing at the town, snapped Kenton. Go directly out to the ship. Claft relayed the command to the pilot. The helicopter swept a descending curve across the plain toward the gleaming hull. As they passed the man below, Birkin looked up. He continued to limp along at a brisk pace with the aid of what looked like a short spear. Go down, Kenton ordered. The pilot landed about a hundred yards from the spaceship. By the time his passengers had alighted, however, Birkin had drawn level with them, about fifty feet away. Birkin, shouted Kenton, where do you think you're going? Seeing that no one ran after him, Birkin slowed his pace, but kept walking toward the ship. He watched them over his shoulder. Sorry, Kenton, he shouted with no noticeable tone of regret. I figure I better travel on for my health. It's not so damn healthy up there, called Kenton. I told you how there's no clear path. Yeah, yeah, you told me. That don't mean I gotta believe it. Wait, don't you think they tried sending unmanned rockets up? Everyone was struck and exploded. Birkin showed no more change of expression than if the other had commented on the weather. Kenton had stepped forward six or eight paces, irritated despite his anxiety at the way Birkin persisted in drifting before him. Kenton couldn't just grab him, bad leg or not. He could probably break the older man in two. He glanced back at the Tapoctans beside the helicopter, Claft, the pilot, the officer, the constable with the rocket weapon. They stood silently looking back at him. The call for help that had arisen to his lips died there. Not their party, he muttered. He turned again to Birkin, who still retreated toward the ship. But he'll only get himself killed and destroy the ship. Or if some miracle gets him through, that's worse. He's nothing to turn loose on a civilized colony again. A twinge of shame tugged down the corners of his mouth as he realized that keeping Birkin here would expose a highly cultured people to an unscrupulous criminal who had already committed murder the very first time he had been crossed. Birkin, he shouted, for the last time, do you want me to send them to drag you back here? Birkin stopped at that. He regarded the motionless Tepoctans with a derisive sneer. They don't look too eager to me, he taunted. Kenton growled a Tepoctan expression, the meaning of which he had deduced after hearing it used by the dam workers. He whirled to run toward the helicopter. Hardly had he taken two steps, however, when he saw startled changes in the carefully blank looks of his escort. 
The constable half-raised his heavy weapon, and Claff sprang forward with a hissing cry. By the time Kenton's aging muscles obeyed his impulse to sidestep, the spear had already hurtled past. It had missed him by an error of over six feet. He felt his face flushing with sudden anger. Birkin was running as best he could toward the spaceship, and had covered nearly half the distance. Kenton ran at the Topakkans, brushing aside the concerned claft. He snatched the heavy weapon from the surprised constable. He turned and raised it to his chest. Because of the shortness of Topakkan arms, the launcher was constructed so that the butt rested against the chest with the siding loops before the eyes. The little rocket tubes were above head height to prevent the handlers catching the blast. The circles of the sights weaved and danced about the running figure. Kitten realized to his surprise that the effort of seizing the weapon had him panting. Or was it the fright at having a spear thrown at him? He decided that Birkin had not come close enough for that, and wondered if he was afraid of his own impending action. It wasn't fear, he complained to himself. The poor slob only had a spear, and a man couldn't blame him for wanting to get back to his own sort. He was limping, hurt. How could they expect him to realize? Then, abruptly, his lips tightened to a thin line. The sight steadied on Birkin as the ladder approached the foot of the ladders leading to the entrance port of the spaceship. Kenton pressed the firing stud. Across the hundred-yard space streaked four flaring little projectiles. Kenton, without exactly seeing each, was aware of the general lines of flight diverging gradually to bracket the figure of Birkin. One struck the ground beside the man just as he set one foot on the bottom rung of the ladder and skittered away past one fin of the ship before exploding. The others burst against the hull, scattering metal fragments. Another puffed on the upright of the ladder just above Birkin's head. The spaceman was thrown back from the ladder. He balanced on his heels for a moment with outstretched fingers reaching toward the grips from which they had been torn. Then he crumpled into a limp huddle on the yellowing turf. Clinton sighed. The constable took the weapon from him, reloaded deftly, and proffered it again. When the Terran had not reached for it, the officer held out a claw hand to receive it. He gestured silently, and the constable trotted across the intervening ground to bend over Birkin. "'He is dead,' said Claft, when the constable straightened up with a curt wave. "'Will... will you have someone see to him, please?' Kenton requested, turning toward the helicopter. "'Yes, George,' said Claft. "'George?' "'Well?' It would be very instructive. That is, I believe Dr. Shuxelke would like to... All right, yielded Kenton, surprised at the harshness of his own voice. Just tell him not to bring around any sketches of the various organs for a few months. He climbed into the helicopter and slumped into his seat. Presently, he was aware of Claft edging into the seat across the aisle. He looked up. The police will stay until cars from town arrive. They are coming now, said his aide. Kenton stared at his hands, wondering at the fact that they were not shaking. He felt dejected, empty, not like a man who had just been at a high pitch of excitement. Why did you not let him go, George? What? Why? Why, he would have destroyed the ship you worked so hard to build. There is no safe path through the Dome of Eyes.
No predictable path, Claft corrected. But what then? We should have built you another ship, George, for it was you who showed us how. Kenton flexed his fingers slowly. He was just so good. You know the murder he did there. We can only guess what he did among my own, among Terran's. Should he have a chance to go back and commit more crimes? I understand, George, the logic of it, said Claft. I meant, it's not my place to say this, but you seem unhappy. Possibly, grunted Kenton Riley. We too have criminals, said the aide, as gently as was possible in his clicking language. We do not think it necessary to grieve for the pain they bring upon themselves. No, I suppose not, sighed Kenton. I, it's just... He looked up at the pointed visage, at the strange eyes regarding him sympathetically from beneath the sloping, purple-scaled forehead. It's just that now I'm lonely, again, he said. End of section 11 Main The Outbreak of Peace by H.B. Fife When properly conducted, a diplomatic mission can turn the most smashing of battle successes into a fabulous, heroic victory. It was a great pity. Space Marshal Wilbur Hennings reflected, as he gazed through the one-way glass of the balcony door, that the local citizens had insisted upon decorating the square before their capital with the hulk of the first spaceship ever to have landed on Pollux 5. A hundred and fifty years probably seemed impressive to them, amid the explosive spread of Terran colonies and federations. Actually, in the Marshal's opinion, it was merely long enough to reveal such symbols as more than antiquated but less than historically precious. I presume you have a plan to have me march past that heap, he complained, tugging at the extremely historical sword that completed the effect of his dazzling white and gold uniform. Commodore Miller, his aide, stiffened nervously. Around to the right of it, sir, he gestured. As you see, the local military are already keeping the route clear of onlookers. We thought it would be most impressive if your party were to descend the outer stairway from the palace balcony here, to heighten the importance of, to draw out the pomp and circumstance of opening the conference? Well, sir, and then across the square to the conference hall of the capital, outside which you'll pause for a few gracious words to the crowd. And that will probably be my last opportunity to enjoy the morning sunlight. Oh, well, it seems much too bright here in any case. The Commodore absently reached out to adjust a fold in his chief's sky-blue sash, and the Marshal as absently parried the gesture. I shall be hardly less than half an hour crossing the square, he predicted sourly. With the cheering throngs they have undoubtedly arranged, and the sunlight reflecting from all that imitation marble, it will be no place to collect one's thoughts. He turned back to the huge chamber constituting the office of the suite supplied him by his Paluxian hosts. The skeleton staff of men and women remaining occupied chairs and benches along only one wall, since the bulk of the delegation had been sent out to make themselves popular with the local populace. Hennings presumed the bulk of the local populace to be consisted of Paluxians, assigned to making themselves popular with his Ursan Federation delegation. 
his people would be listening politely to myriad reasons why the Paluxians had a natural right to occupy all the star systems from here to Castor, a dozen light years farther from Terra. No one would mention the true motive, their illogical choice in naming themselves the Twin Empire. Well now, he said crisply, once more over the main points of the situation. No, Commodore, not the schedule of experts that will accompany me to the table. I rely upon you to have perfected that. But have there been any unforeseen developments in the actual fighting? A cluster of aides, mostly in uniform, but including a few in discreetly elegant civilian attire, moved forward. Each one was somehow followed within arm's reach by an aide of his own, so that the advance presented overtones of a small sortie. Hennings first nodded to the first, a youngish man whose air suggested technical competence more than the assurance of great authority. The officer placed his briefcase upon the glistening surface of a large table and touched a switch on the flap. It's as well to be sure, sir, the Commodore approved. Our men have been unable to detect any devices, but the walls may have ears. They won't scan through this scrambler, sir, asserted the young officer. Hennings accepted a seat at the table and looked up to one of the others. Myrilli Starr, an older officer, reported briskly. The same situation prevails, with both sides having landed surface troops in force upon Myrelli II, Myrelli III, and Myrelli V, the fourth planet being inhabited by a partly civilized, non-human race protected under the Terran Convention. Recent engagements? No, sir. Maneuvering continues, but actual encounters have declined in frequency. Casualties are modest and evenly matched. General Nielsen on Myrelli III continues to receive Paluxian agents seeking his defection. I never thought to ask, murmured Hennings. Is he really a distant connection of the Paluxian Nielsen family? It is improbable, sir, but they are polite enough to accept the pretense. Of course, he rejects every offer in a very high-minded manner and seems to be making an adequate impression of chivalry. He stepped back at Henning's nod to be replaced by another officer. One minor space skirmish in the Agoki system to report, sir. The admiral in command appears to have recouped after the error of two days ago, when that Paluxian detachment was so badly mauled. He arranged the capture of three of our cruisers. Was that not a trifle rash? demanded Hennings. Intelligence is inclined to think not, sir. The ships were armed only with weapons listed as general knowledge items. The crews were not only trained in prisoner-of-war tactics, but also well supplied with small luxuries. The Paluxian fleet in that system is known to have been in space for several months, so a friendly effect is anticipated. Hennings considered the condensed report proffered for his perusal. He noted that the Paluxians had been quite gentlemanly about notifying Ursan headquarters of the capture and of the complete lack of casualties. He also saw that while the message was ostensibly directed to the Federation flagship, it had been beamed in such a fashion as to be conveniently intercepted by the secret Ursan Federation headquarters on Agoki 7. That was a bit rude of them, he commented. We have never dragged their secrets into the open. 
On the other hand, sir, the Commodore suggested, it may be an almost sophisticated method of permitting us to enjoy our superior finesse. I am just as pleased to have the reminder, said Hennings. It will serve to alert us all the more when we sit down with them over there. An elegant civilian, a large man with patient, drooping features, stated that nothing had occurred to change the economic situation. Another reported that unofficial channels of information were holding up as well as could be expected. A uniformed officer summarized the battle situation in two more star systems. Those are positions we actually desire to hold, are they not? Hennings asked. Is action to be taken there? Plans call for local civilian riots at the height of the conference, sir. But can we lay no groundwork sooner than that? Sometime in the foreseeable future, at least. Take it up with propaganda. Blauvelt. It seems to me that the briefing mentioned an indigenous race on one of these planets. Blauvelt dropped his eyes momentarily, equivalent in that gathering to a blush of intense embarrassment. Hennings coughed apologetically. Well now, I should not pry into arrangements I must later be able to deny convincingly with a clear conscience. I can only plead, my dear Blauvelt, the tenseness of the past several days. The officer murmured inaudibly, fumbled with his papers, and edged to the rear rank. Someone, at Commodore Miller's fluttering, obtained a vacuum jug of ice water and a glass for the marshal, but Hennings chose instead to produce a long cigar from a pocket concealed beneath his resplendent collection of medals. My apologies to all of you, he said thoughtfully. I fear that any of you who may expect contact with the local population had better see Dr. Ibn Talal about the hypnosis necessary to counteract my little indiscretion. And now, what remains? Nothing but the prisoner exchange, sir, Commodore Miller announced after collecting the eyes of the principal officers. Hennings got his cigar going. He listened to confirmation of a previous report that had massive exchange of sick and wounded prisoners had been accomplished, and learned that the Ursons now suspected that they had accepted unknowingly about as many secret agents as they had sent the Paluxians. Oh well, he sighed, as long as the amenities were preserved. We must be as friendly as possible about that sort of thing, or run the risk of antagonizing them. Seeing that the Commodore was tense with impatience, the Marshal rose to his feet. An aide deftly received the cigar for disposal, and the party drifted expectantly toward the balcony doors. From among that part of the staff which would remain to man headquarters, an officer was dispatched to alert the Paluxian Honor Guard. One more touch before the die is cast, thought the Marshal, as two young officers opened the balcony doors to admit the blare of trumpets. Chairs rolled successively across the square, rising like distant waves from somewhere beneath the gigantic banner that draped the capital opposite with fiery letters spelling out Peace Conference. With a dramatic gesture, Hennings held up the sheaf of reports they had just reviewed. Smiles disappeared in response to his own serious mien. So much for the hostiles, he snapped. He tossed the reports to the officer who would remain in charge. Now for the actual war. 
Pivoting on his heel, he led them smartly out to the ornate balcony stairway that curved down into the sea of cheering Paluxians. End of section 12